And in a moment, I'm going to read Psalm 136, but I'm going to ask you to read along uh, your part. And I'll explain that in just one second. <clears throat> Psalm 136 is, was designed from the beginning as an antiphonal psalm. That is, it's a call and response. Uh, a leader would say the first part, and you'll notice in Psalm 136, there's a refrain in each of the different verses, each, each of the 26 verses. And if you have the ESV, which I'll be reading from, that refrain is this. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let's try that. For his steadfast love endures forever. Right. So I will read the first part of the verse, and you, everyone else will then say, For his steadfast love Endures forever. Right, let's give this a try. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for His steadfast love endures forever. To Him alone, who alone does great wonders... For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights. For his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day. For his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night. His steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. For his steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them. For his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two. For his steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it. For his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings. For his steadfast love endures forever. And killed mighty kings. For his steadfast love endures forever. Sihon king of the Amorites. For his steadfast love endures forever. And Og king of Bashan. For his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage, for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our low estate, for his steadfast love endures forever. And rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. Amen.
Well, today is the 15th, so there's, what, 31 days in January, so it's still on this side of the first half. I think I can just about get away with saying, Happy New Year. Well, I don't know if you're one who, at the beginning of each new year, uh, likes to sit and reflect on the one that's just gone by, and then plan for the year ahead. Uh, Many make resolutions, uh, nearly as many break them, uh, myself included, I'm sorry to say, But that does not negate the value of these resolutions. Uh, I think uh, if you don't completely give up on them, it's better to aim at something than to aim at nothing and hit that every time. So one resolution that I am aiming for this year, and so far, I think by God's grace, I'm I'm on track, is that of being thankful. Being thankful, especially of God's great love and kindness towards me each and every day. Uh, This love and kindness springs out of who God is. And so I desire to be thankful for God himself. And not just for what he's done for me. It's a lofty goal, I admit, but I would also submit it's a biblical one. Well, the Bible tells us of both the character of God, who he is, and of the deeds of God. His creation, to begin with, his creation of all that is. His mercy to Adam and Eve uh, when they fell. His rescuing for himself uh, out of a fallen mankind, a people for himself, by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, and by sustaining his people so that none will be lost. These are all amazing things that God has done and is indeed still doing. Well, what should our response be to who God is and what he's done? Well, in a word, I submit it's worship. Worship. And today's passage in Psalm 136 leads us in just that. As we just experienced, the the psalmist is leading the congregation in worship through this call and response format of of the psalm, reminding them of God's character, who He is, and also what He has done and continues to do for His people. And then what our response should be. Well, Psalm 136 breaks into six sections. So if you're a note taker, I got six points. Um, The first one, well, all of them begin with give thanks to the Lord. So that's going to be easy. So give thanks to the Lord, the good and sovereign God. That's verses 1 through 3. Give thanks to the Lord, the good and sovereign God. Secondly, give thanks to the Lord, the creator of all. Verses 4 through 9. And then give thanks to the Lord, the rescuer of his people. Verses 10 through 16. Give thanks to the Lord, the victorious defender. Verses 17 through 24. And then my fifth point, give thanks to the Lord, the merciful sustainer. And then finally, give thanks to the Lord, the God of heaven. Well, that's verse 26. Let's, let's begin and look at the first of these. Give thanks to the Lord, the good and sovereign God. Beginning in verse 1, where the psalmist writes, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. The preceding psalm, which is Psalm 135, and along with Psalms 146 through 150, uh, begin and end with the same phrase. Praise the Lord. In the Hebrew, it's probably everybody here knows a bit of Hebrew because it's the word hallelujah. Praise Yah. Praise Yahweh. 
Praise the Lord. So these psalms are known as the Hallel Psalms, after the first word praise. Because the command to give praise to the Lord, that is, to worship Him. And Psalm 136, while it begins slightly differently with give thanks to the Lord, it's nevertheless known in the Jewish tradition as Hallel Hagadol, the great Hallel, or the great psalm of praise. As it too is commanding the worship of the Lord. But in this instance, it's reminding the people of God that thanksgiving is an integral part of worship. Well, as I said, the psalmist begins by commanding the congregation to give thanks to the Lord. And in his commentary, Derek Kidner notes that the word translated give thanks, has the idea of to confess or to acknowledge something in addition to being thankful. So it implies that our worship is to be a grateful confession done in a deliberate and thoughtful manner. And this command is found explicitly in each of the first three verses. But it's, and it's also in the last verse, in verse 26. And while it's not explicitly pre- present in verses 4 through 25, it is still there grammatically. It's implied, in other words. Each verse of the psalm begins, therefore, either explicitly or implicitly with the idea of, or phrase, give thanks to the Lord. And so we could, I think, rightfully conclude that the psalmist is commanding us to therefore gratefully confess or acknowledge the Lord in each verse of this psalm. Well, for what reason? Well, I would say for the 26 different reasons that the psalmist confesses as evidence of God's unending covenant love. Well, with what does the psalmist begin? He begins with the character of God, which underpins all that follows saying, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. We thank Him that He in Himself is good. And we also thank Him for His many good gifts and many good acts, not only toward us, but to His people, but also to all mankind. But God is good, not though as we think of good. God is intrinsically good. He's good in His being. We tend to think of good as in comparison to something else, uh, but not God. God is superlatively good, good beyond compare, good in himself. When the rich young ruler approached Jesus and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Remember that? You remember Jesus' response? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Now, much ink has been spilt, especially by liberal theologians, saying, look, Jesus is denying his divinity. He's saying he's not good. No, Jesus isn't saying that at all. He's not denying his deity, but he's calling out the rich young ruler's misunderstanding of true goodness and the ruler's assumption that both he and Jesus were good. In the ruler's case, it's because of his moral achievements. The rich young ruler's attitude concerning Jesus was not, you're the eternal son of God, sharing God's attributes of goodness, but rather, you're a good teacher, just like I'm a good person. Especially when I compare my, ourselves to those around us who don't keep the law like, well, like I do, and like obviously you do. 
So please tell me what else do I have to do to inherit eternal life. That's the rich young ruler's attitude. Do you see the difference? And of God's goodness, Charles Spurgeon wrote that God is good beyond all others. Indeed, He alone is good. And in the highest sense, He is the source of all good, the sustainer of good, the perfecter of good, and the rewarder of good. And Spurgeon says, for this he, disturb, he deserves sorry, the constant gratitude of his people. God alone is good, unchangeably good, for God never changes. And this is such a wonderful com- comfort, I would think, in light of what the psalmist then says in verses 2 and 3, where he says, give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. For his steadfast love endures forever. Those two verses are echoing Deuteronomy 10.17 where Moses declares, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. The Lord, that is Yahweh, is the true and living God, the only God. And this calls for our thankful confession of his sovereignty as we worship him alone. God is good. And God is sovereign. Well, does knowing that God is both good and sovereign make a difference? What if he were only one but not the other? If he were sovereign but not good, what an utterly terrifying thing that would be. We would be at the mercy of an almighty, capricious tyrant. But on the other hand, if he were good but not sovereign, well... What a sad thing that would be because it would mean that he's not only not much of a God, he's he's not God at all. He's unable to govern his creation as he does. So does knowing that God is both good and sovereign make a difference when the doctor's surgery rings you with news that you never want to hear? Does knowing that God is both good and sovereign make a difference when there's been a terrible automobile accident involving you or a loved one? or you've been the victim of a senseless crime, or you've lost your job, does it make a difference? I submit the answer is a resounding yes. Yes. Because he is both good and sovereign, all that God does is also good and right. For he can only do that which is in line with his nature, his character. And because he is unchanging, his steadfast love endures forever. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are His, He is working good for you, no matter your immediate circumstances. This is why Paul can write as he does in Romans 8.28 and then 35-39, through where he says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. And then he later writes, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But then Paul says, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Paul also writes in 2 Corinthians 4 where he says, We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And then he says, For this light momentary affliction, it may not feel light. It may feel awful and awfully heavy. But he says, This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This knowledge may not relieve the immediate circumstances, knowing that God is both good and sovereign. It may not relieve the circumstances, it may not relieve the pain of whatever situation that you may find yourself in. You know, it doesn't make these things magically go away. But it's a great comfort to know that nothing, nothing happens by random chance or blind fate. Our good and sovereign God is carefully and lovingly bringing us through them for His glory and, yes, our ultimate good. His covenant love endures forever, never faltering, never failing. And because of this, He is worthy of our grateful worship. Well, having pointed us first to the Lord's goodness and sovereignty, the psalmist now, in a reflection of the opening of Genesis 1, directs us to gratefully worship Him by seeing His goodness and sovereignty in His act of creation, as well as over creation itself. Look at verses 4 through 9 as we give thanks to the Lord, the Creator of all. And I'm just going to read uh, the first part of each verse, and then with the last verse, verse 9, then I'll, I'll include the, for his steadfast love endures forever. But understand that it is there. To him who alone does great wonders, to him who by understanding made the heavens, to him who spread out the earth above the waters, to him who made the great lights, the sun to rule over the day, the moon and the stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. The psalmist declares that God alone is the almighty author of creation. It is he alone who does great wonders and who by his understanding made the heavens and all that is in it. And he does so because his steadfast love endures forever. Not only is God sovereign over his creation, but as the psalmist has already confessed, he's good. And what God makes is good as well. A quick glance at Genesis will show this to be so. If you look at verses 1, 4, 1, 10, 1, 12, 18, 21, 25, and 31, each of those begins, or excuse me, ends with, and it was good, and God saw that it was good. Verse 31 says, And God said, saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. He is the Almighty God, the good God. And one glance at his creation should cause us to burst forth in grateful praise to our marvelous Creator for placing us in such a good world. Even despite the fall, this is such a good world. It is another evidence of his faithful and merciful covenant love. 
Unfortunately for many of those, uh, those who reject the message of creation and the fact that there is a creator to whom we are accountable, there are oftentimes one of two extremes that are commonly taken. This world is either treated as something to worship or something to be exploited. Many today who fear that uh, mankind is destroying the planet through our use of fossil fuels, who are contributing to what they see as climate change, their um, conclusion is they have no hope for the future. So fearful to the point that they're willing to put their lives and others at risk in protest. And they have something in common. They worship at the altar of a closed cosmos. What do I mean by that? Well, just this. Having rejected the idea of God and His revealed truth, to them, this material world, these things that we can see, that we can touch, that we can taste, that we can measure, is all there is. Creation is elevated to almost that of a deity. And for some, it is. If you do a search on the internet on Gaia or Gaia, you just might be surprised with the number of adherents that are there. Well, thus elevated to an object of worship, like any object of worship, it demands sacrifice and obeisance. And fear drives those in this camp to react as they do, especially when they perceive the object of their worship is threatened. It's a world of hopelessness, without ultimate meaning, and yet with a frenzied drive to save what they can for as long as they can. In their minds, it is all up to humanity alone. There's There is no God to turn to. With the other extreme taken by some, who, by the way, are also operating from a closed materialistic worldview, many of them, is to exploit the creation as much as possible, to wring from it all that can be taken to benefit one's personal advancement or advantage, never mind the consequences for future generations. And still others may also take this view of exploitation, but they do so from a theological bent. They may say, well, the old heavens and the old earth are going to pass away and God's going to renew it all, so what does it matter? What does it matter how I treat the earth today? It matters a lot. Those in this end forget that creation does not belong to mankind. To treat however humanity wishes. Humanity is but a steward of creation. Creation belongs to the Creator, not to the creation. And creation is neither to be worshipped or exploited. Both extremes are wrong. Well, how should we then regard creation? James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on Psalm 136, gives, I think, three helpful suggestions. He said, first of all, we should be thankful for it. We should be thankful for it. It is the good work of our good God. And despite it being subjected to the curse as a result of the fall, it still proclaims his glory day in and day out. Psalm 19 tells us this. It's a silent testimony to the believer and unbeliever alike. And secondly, we should delight in it. Delight, says Boyce, is a, it's a step beyond being thankful. Or it's a, sorry, it says it's a step related to being thankful, but it's a step beyond it. Um, We are to really enjoy creation because God has been good in what he has created for us. And we can delight in creation even more so than the non-Christian. 
even more so than the so-called nature worshiper, because we have knowledge of the God who stands behind everything that we see. And lastly, we should create creation responsibly. It doesn't mean we can't use the natural resources at our disposal. We should, they're there. But it does mean that we're to do so in a way that doesn't destroy the creation, including the people, in the process. Neither are we to do so in some otherwise strictly utilitarian manner, without regard for the created purpose of these resources. Again, it's not our own creation. We must remember that we are but stewards. Well, not only is God's goodness and sovereignty seen in creation, but they're also seen in his rescuing a people for himself out of their bondage. Look at verses 10 through 16 as we come to my third point. Give thanks to the Lord, the rescuer of his people. And just like the last time, I'm going to read the first part of each verse until the verse 16. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, to him who divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it, but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, to him who led his people through the wilderness for his steadfast love endures forever. Here the psalmist directs the people of God to gratefully confess and worship the Lord's good, sovereign, and mighty hand in rescuing them from their slavery in Egypt and keeping faith with his promises to Abraham that he made, not only in Genesis 12 and Genesis 22, but also in Genesis 15. And I'm going to just look at verses 13 through 14 specifically. There's much more to this, but that's for your homework. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants, literally slaves there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. The Lord is telling Abraham, he's, he's prophesying their captivity in Egypt. And then the Lord says, But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. The Exodus was the defining moment for Israel as a nation. They weren't a nation beforehand. Afterwards, they were. And indeed, when the Lord entered into his covenant with the people in Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 2, in the giving of the Ten Commandments, he begins by declaring who he is in light of what he's already done. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Well, this is wonderful, Larry, you just might say, but how does this apply to us today? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Exodus, for all its importance and significance in redemptive history, was but a shadow, a foretaste of the great rescue that God would accomplish for his people, not limited to national Israel, but for both Jew and Gentile alike. A rescue not merely from physical slavery and bondage, but from our slavery and bondage to sin. A rescue from our cell, as it were, on death row, where we sat guilty and condemned under and under sentence of eternal punishment because of God's just and righteous wrath against our sin. 
It was not the blood, though, of a mere lamb that saved us, but the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, which has atoned for the sin of His people, for those who have put their trust in Christ and in His finished work, in His life, in His death on the cross, and in His resurrection from the dead. How could we, in light of so great a salvation, not gratefully acknowledge what the Lord has done? How could we not worship Him with thankful hearts for His steadfast love toward us, who have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to God's glory alone? Well, the Lord, not only good and sovereign in His being, not, and not only in His acts of creation and rescuing a people for Himself, is good and sovereign in His defending His redeemed people and in bringing them home. Look at verses 17 through 24 where we come to our fourth point. Give thanks to the Lord, the victorious defender. Verse 17, to him who struck down great kings for his, sorry, for for him who struck down great kings and killed mighty kings, Sihon king of the Amorites and Og king of Bashan and gave their land as a heritage a heritage to Israel, his servant. It is he who remembered us in our lowest state and rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. The psalmist commands the congregation to recall how the Lord has not only brought his people out of Egypt, but despite their repeated sins and failures, he he brought them through the wilderness He defeated their mighty enemies, of whom Sihon and Og are just but two that are mentioned. And he brought them into the promised land. He kept his promise. Again, this is but a shadow of the even greater reality to come. For we, the greater Israel, though we have been redeemed from slavery to sin, though we have been set free from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's marvelous light, Yet we still are on our journey here in this life, looking forward to our final promised Sabbath rest. That we, we have our final Sabbath rest already in Christ, but we are still looking forward to that day when all of this is realized in full. Because the Lord's goodness and sovereignty and because of his faithful covenant love that never comes to an end, his promise to bring us home is likewise secure. Listen to what Jesus said in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 27 through 30. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. No wonder Paul would write in Philippians 1.6 of his confidence when he said, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. He will bring it to completion. If you are Christ's, if you are his, he will bring you home. So we are commanded to thankfully confess the one who promises to defend us from all attacks of the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
all of which would seek to prevent us from persevering to the end. But by God's grace, he does just as he promises. He is our victorious defender. No one is able to snatch us from the Father's hand. He preserves and sustains his people all the way to the day of Christ's return. And for this, we gratefully worship and praise him for his covenant love and faithfulness. Well, his good, his goodness and his sovereignty is not only seen in his victoriously defending his people, not only in sustaining his people, bringing them with him to be with him forever, but we see this in his common grace to all mankind. Look at my fifth point in verse 25. Give thanks to the Lord, the merciful sustainer. Verse 25 tells us he gives food to all flesh for his steadfast love endures forever. In this verse, the psalmist reminds the congregation that God's love extends also to all of his creation, not just his people. Theologians often speak of God's love toward mankind in three different ways. Um, They speak first of his love of benevolence, his love of beneficence, and his love of complacency. And we'll look at each of these. First, let's look at God's love of benevolence. Uh, which is his goodwill. You can see it in the word itself if you know any Latin. Bene means well or good, and volens uh, means desire or will. It's God's general kind disposition towards his creation. What about this love of beneficence, the second love? What's closely related to the love of benevolence, which is God's goodwill, the difference, sorry, the difference being that the first one, benevolence, is a disposition. It's God's attitude towards his creation. But the second one is action. Bene, well or good, plus ficus, meaning doing. These first two loves describe God's common grace for all mankind, not just his disposition, uh, his disposition of goodwill, and his acting in good ways towards mankind, all mankind, not just his covenant people. It's what Jesus alludes to in the Sermon on the Mount when he taught his primarily, well, his Jewish audience that they were to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Well, what about this love of complacency? Uh, R.C. Sproul used to like to point out that uh, it's not what we might think. It's not a smug or indifferent kind of love. And that we would maybe reach that conclusion because to be complacent in our modern thinking is to be just that sort of self-satisfied kind of thing. But that's not, what he, that's not the uh, correct meaning uh, in this, this regard. In fact, it's the, it's the opposite of it. Again, looking at the Latin roots, it derives its meaning from come, meaning with, plus pecare, to please. So with pleasing. The object of complacency is that in which someone finds great delight or pleasure. Theologically, then, the love of complacency is first and foremost the special love that God has for his only begotten Son. It is Jesus Christ who is the beloved by the Father, the Son in whom He is well pleased. And because of our union with Christ, we who are His share in this special love of complacency. Whereas mankind, all mankind, 
Well, the rest of mankind are recipients of God's love, of benevolence and beneficence, his good will and his good actions. But only his adopted children in Christ share in this special third kind of love. But nevertheless, the Lord provides and sustains not just for his people, but all his creatures, even those, think about this, even those who hate him. And this is good news for us. Why is that? Well, because at one time, before we had put our trust in Christ, we too were God's enemies. A quick glance at Romans chapter 5 makes that very clear. And as Paul also writes in Acts chapter 14, when speaking to the crowd at Lystra, he says, we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things, that is, from idols, to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and with gladness. And again in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, where Paul writes, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? For those who wonder why when, when you immediately sin, God doesn't just squash you like a bug, that's the reason. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. And by the way, if you're in Christ, his blow has already fallen on his son completely. You stand righteous and holy in Christ. Well, God's goodness to all mankind is reason enough that all who have experienced this common grace and expression of God's love should repent of their sin and should turn to him through Christ, yet because many do not and will not, they heap up judgment upon themselves for the day of God's wrath. Is this you this morning? Do you hear week in and week out of God's goodness to you? Of his love and kindness toward you? Yet you stubbornly harden your heart against his voice? Oh, I beg of you, if this is you, repent of your sin. Turn from your hard-heartedness and throw yourself upon the mercy of God through Christ, trusting in Him who said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Friend, believe this and be saved from the judgment to come. Well, as we draw to a close, we've seen in the opening of this psalm how the psalmist began with this focus on God's character, who He is. And here in this last verse, we come full circle with the final reason given, given in commanding the grateful worship of the Lord, because he is the God of heaven. Which brings me to my final point and our final verse. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. The command once again spelled out and not just implied in this last verse is to gratefully confess this truth about the Lord. He is the God of heaven, the Most High God. There is no other. There are none greater. None whose reign is unlimited by time and space. Twenty-six times throughout this psalm, the psalmist has had us to declare, as we did in our reading, in response to these affirmations about the Lord, 
that there is none so faithful in keeping covenant with those upon whom he has set his never-failing loyal love, mercy, and kindness. The Lord is good. He is almighty and sovereign. Therefore, his chesed, his covenant love, never, ever fails. For he never fails. It is his steadfast love, his covenant love, and it never ends. For he never goes back on his word. He cannot. He never breaks his covenant. He cannot. Such is our God. And such knowledge can only spur us on to one worshipful response. Give thanks to the Lord, the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let us pray. Lord God, we give thanks to you, the God of heaven, the God of all that is, the God above all gods, the Lord above all lords. We gratefully confess to you that you alone are good. You alone are God. You alone are merciful. You alone are forgiving. You alone are redeeming. You alone are loving. And we thank you for loving us in this way. Oh Lord, please work in our hearts today and this week and the rest of our lives that our life might be one that is lived out of pure gratitude, gratefulness, thanksgiving to you, our, our Lord, our God, and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.